Sholem Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and I'm here today with Dr. Murray Spiegel. A speechwriter, researcher, and telecommunications, he has established reputation for innovative Passover seders. Since leading his first seder while in graduate school, Murray has made each of the more than 35 seders different than the last. With his wife, Randy, Murray has transformed their house into a Bedouin tent, a jumbo jet taking the Israelites out of Egypt, and so much more. Murray, along with his friend Ricky Stein, a pharmacist with a lifelong interest in languages, have combed the globe for native speakers to translate the four questions into 255 languages from Arabic to Zulu. Welcome, Murray. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be talking with you and uh, and with all of your podcast listeners. It's delightful to have you here. So uh, first question I have is tell me about this project and how did it all come about? Well, it came about because I just have a love for Passover and for Seders that uh, started from when I was uh, a little child. It was a time of getting together with all of my family. And when I was a grad student, uh, I kind of pined away for not having my family near me, so I started leading Seders on my own at that point. But uh, really, the, the fascination with the Manish Tanah, the four questions, started when um, I had uh, already established a bit of a reputation for having some fun satyrs. A friend of mine came up to me and said, I do a really good impersonation of someone who's famous. I want you to record me uh, saying the Manish Tanah as this, in this particular way. He told me who it was, and I said, oh, this is going to be just a riot. Who knew that Donald Duck uh, was so fluent in Hebrew? And what happened later is I started recording other people doing the Manish Tanah. There's someone who comes to our Seder every, who used to come to our Seder every year who spoke Ladino. This is the language of the Jews mm-hmm. who were expelled from Spain um, in 1492. And um, so what happened that after, after that, I got interested in the Manish Tanah and how it was said in many different ways. But a pivotal point happened when, in my company newspaper, there was a story about an Orthodox Jew that was translating the Book of Jonah into Klingon. Now, for your listeners who don't know what Klingon is, it was a constructed language that, was, that played a very central role in the science fiction uh, Star Trek. And um, this fellow was uh, really the world's expert in how Klingon is pronounced. He's the one who runs the Klingon Language Institute's webpage. There's like 30,000 members of that stuff. So, um, so I asked him if he'd translate the four questions, and he said, uh, yeah, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, there's no word for bitter, but I'll come up with something. And I, I always playfully say, when we heard the recording, we were kind of puzzled. So what, let's listen to that, and you'll see what, you'll see my little joke associated with that. So when we heard it, we said, you know, we were amazed that the people on Klingon used the Ashkenazic melody. We didn't expect that, of course. So... We, um, so at this point are two amazing coincidences, and this is really how the whole project got its, uh, uh, got its start. So the first is that the Klingon's mother, as we used to say, uh, sings in a choir that my wife and I are part of. And uh, in discussing this with her, this other fellow overheard the conversation and said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I've been asking people to translate the four questions. And he turns to me and says, well, for the past 17 years, I've been asking people to translate the four questions. And we were astounded at the coincidence of the only two people on earth doing this were in the same small Jewish choir. And uh, our little joke about that is we say, you know, imagine how many people around the world might be interested. The answer still might be two. 
but uh, we decided to combine our resources. And really, just we started at that point. So the whole project started because of Donald Duck and Klingon. So I, I do have to ask you, um, why the four questions? And is there, um, a, yeah, is there a serious side to it? What's everybody's reaction when you ask them? Well, it's, um, well, okay, so there's there several questions there. So why do we use the four questions? In, in the case of um, my interest in it was just almost an accidental thing because that my friends started, you know, wanted to do the Donald Duck. In the case of my co-author, um, he was at a Seder 45 years ago, something like that, and his Seder host, knowing that uh, Ricky loved uh, Spanish and Mexican culture, asked him to translate the four questions. And we have met, as a result of this project, we've met lots of people that are strangely attracted to doing the four questions in other languages. Uh, we've even met uh, some people who, uh, whose children work in the Peace Corps, and they tell their kids, bring back a translation from that village in South Africa or wherever you're doing your, your Peace Corps activities so that we can share some of the flavor of that village at our Seder using the four questions. Okay. Now, of course, the four questions are special because uh, it's kind of a, it's, it's a venue, it's, it's a, a mechanism to have a communication between the parent and the child, and it's really the, the one thing that the child is expected to do or, or encouraged to do to ask questions. So it's important for the Seder, but it's also fun because it's early in the Seder, everybody's engaged, and uh, people have used our translations in many, many different ways and just loved using them. Sure. Uh, and yeah, it's part of the Seder tradition that I remember when you first got to ask a question. Um, I gather that you have translations including as, you know, Jews from Uganda to Uzbekistan, Aboriginals in Australia, an Eskimo bishop, and a trilingual seven-year-old who speaks Yiddish, and that's just a few of the many. Um, so quickly, how did you decide to reach out to them? And then I'm hoping you can share a few examples. I'd right, like to. Um, how did we reach out? We would, we would use every mechanism we could in locating people. If I heard a program on WNYC, uh, there was one time a music program of the Jewry, which are the, the mountain Jews from Azerbaijan. So I contacted WNYC, and through that I got to the Center for Traditional Music and, and Dance, and through them I was able to get a hold of them. Uh, someone would say, oh, I work with someone who's from Bukharia. You know, they'll do the Bukharan translation for you. Um, the, there were the newspaper articles about uh, the Lenape, the, 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 the Native Americans that used to live in New York and, and uh, New Jersey. And through there, I maintained contact, or I, I established contact with linguists and ethnographers all around the world. Now, I work in speech technology, so uh, through my own professional contacts, I was able to make, uh, reach out to linguists around the world. But uh, really, we just used every mechanism we could. We'd, we'd read, a, read a story in the newspaper or hear something on the radio, and we'd reach out and try to find it. And what's really, really amazing is we have contributions from 850 people uh, who lived in 102 different countries, and almost everybody was so happy to make a contribution to this project because they loved the fact that there were people focusing on their culture, focusing on their language, and it really is just a multicultural project is beyond belief. That's fantastic. So you'll share a few examples now? Right. Um, so uh, here's uh, yeah, the Bukharan. And in addition to the Bukharan, uh, we also have uh, a sample of the Kiddush that the Bukharan community uses. Uh, in fact, when we asked them to translate this for us, 
um, I sent them a cassette tape, and the, the tape only had five minutes on it, because that's all I needed. But they've started to record the entire Seder for me. And they flipped the tape over, and by the time they finished the five minutes, or the, actually ten minutes, it was on both sides, they hadn't even gotten to the Manashtana yet. <laughs> so uh, it was really a bit of an effort just to get them to do just the Manashtana, because that's all we wanted for them. Now for your Yiddish-speaking listeners, we have a special treat. I'll let him introduce himself. Tatis will the fragen die vier kashes, avos is die nacht von Pesach, anders von alle andere nacht. This is Theodore Bikel, chanting in Yiddish. Yes, Theodore Bikel. While reciting it, he closed his eyes, and I imagined him transported back to Vienna when he first said the Manishtana. He loves our Four Questions project, and it's been wonderful to have his support. And finally, I think the most incredible is that we've been able to get contributions from world experts in ancient languages. So we have um, uh, Ugaritic, and we have Sumerian, and we have um, uh, many others as well. But the most incredible one is that a, a British-trained Egyptologist taught us how the four questions would have been said at the exact time of the Exodus. This is the language that Pharaoh spoke. This is the language that Moses, pleading with Pharaoh, please let our people go. This is the language that, uh, that, that was used. Now, before I play it, you're going to say, how on earth do we have a, you know, can anyone know what it sounds like? Well, there's a field called archaeological linguistics, where you trace backwards in time from the sound patterns of current day languages and work backwards. So all of these ancient languages... This is linguist's best understanding of what the language sounds like. So here's the Egyptian. That was amazing to hear. The question I have for you, having heard that, is, is it hard to translate these? Are some of the words um, a challenge? Well, any of your listeners who know other languages know how hard it is to translate, say, an idiom from one language to another. And uh, so one of, the, one of the challenges, for instance, is do people ask us, do you want to have a cultural translation or do you want to have a linguistic translation? Do you want to have a, a translation from the standpoint of, um, you know, from a young child or from an adult talking to another adult? Different languages have different vocabularies and, and ways of, uh, of addressing people based on what their rank is. Um, some of the funniest things happen when we're translating from... Indian languages. Now, Indian languages, all of the 18 or, or, or so official languages in India, none of them have a word for bread. Hmm. Now, you might say, wait a second, I've eaten in, in Indian restaurants, they have wonderful breads. But they, they actually have a word for every individual type of bread. So you've got naan and roti and, uh, and papadam and so forth and so on. But they actually don't have a generic word for bread. And uh, there are many other times like that where, uh, where we have translations that are, that are approximations to what it is. And in fact, the Hebrew is an approximation. I mean, sorry, the English that we use is an approximation to the original Hebrew. Um, we, if we had a lot more time, we could tell you about uh, how some of the translations that we have. I mean, in fact, why is this night different from all of the nights is really not the most accurate translation. That really came about much later and kind of got... Uh, instantiated because of the Maxwell house that we all were all familiar <laughs> right. with. But the, the real best translation is, how is this night different? Or in, in all the different, you know, tell me about all the different ways in which tonight are different. It's not even, it may not even be a question. 
so uh, it's really it's a fascinating aspect of the project in terms of how people translate things from one language to another. And do you have um, pretty good representation of all of the Jewish languages? I think we have every major every every language that that is really a Jewish language. Mm-hmm. We have languages. Uh, you know, the the rarest language I think we have. Um, for a Jewish language is, is, a, is Judeo-Greek, which is Romaniot. And uh, the um, Romaniot are the Jews that lived in Yanina in Greece before the, before the people from Spain came there. Um, and there's only 50 people left that speak that language. And we've got, uh, you know, on the CD and the DVD that we have uh, with our book, we, that, that we have a, a, an example of the Kiddush and some of the prayers that are special to the Romaniot uh, customs. And your New York listeners may know about the synagogue that's in the Lower East Side. It's the only synagogue that um, that practices uh, the Romaniot customs in the Western Hemisphere. So it's a really it's a wonderful place to uh, to visit. Could we we have time to hear one more? Would it be possible to hear that? Yeah, let's play that. Great. <laughs> Romaniot. That was uh, pretty incredible to hear. Um, so the project, which has been going on for some time, ultimately turned into a book. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It, I understand it contains, what, 22 ancient languages, 290 living languages, four African click languages. I'm just going to list them all. 31 Native American languages, four sign languages, and 40 parodies in constructed language. Yeah, so, so what happened was we were using this collection for our own personal satyrs, and people would contact us and say, hey, I saw on the web that you're looking for, you know, say, Papiamentu. I'm, I'm going to be going to the Netherlands Antilles. You know, can you please share, me, share with me the, the, the materials that you've collected? So we do that. And it was really our friends that uh, begged us and said, you can't keep this all to yourself. You know, you've got to, you've got to publish this. And I said, but I'm not ready to do that. We have only 250 languages, and we've got 50 people around the world helping us. I can't stop now. And then, you know, we reached 300 different ways of saying the four questions, and eventually we did start publishing it. And uh, so we went to a bunch of different publishers, and they all uh, loved the idea, but, but each of them said it really wasn't, uh, it wasn't a good fit with their own, um, with their own publishing uh, uh, list. And so we ended up self-publishing. Um, and the book is called 300 Ways to Ask the Four Questions. We're actually, uh, as we speak, we're in our third printing. We have expanded uh, the, the collection uh, each time, uh, fixing little mistakes that people have made and, and things like that. So it's been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And so um, I really hope uh, many people can uh, look this book up and, uh, and use it at their Seder table. And where do they find this book? Where is it for well, sale? Yep, the... Um, the, the you can go to your local Jewish bookstore. All of them carry it. Uh, if you want to go to a website that we have established, it's called whyisthisnight.com. And uh, one of the things that we offer is we'll inscribe copies for you. We will autograph the copies, or if you want to uh, inscribe it to a, as a gift to uh, a friend or one of your sons or daughters, we'd be, be able to do that as well. So that's whyisthisnight.com. Great. And... Before I let you go, I want to ask, do you have a theme that you're willing to share? What's, what's going to happen this year for Seder? Uh, well, I never divulge what, the, mm. what each year's theme is. But, um, but, on, but we, on, that, on the website, the wisestnight.com site, there's a link to a Seder site, which they can go to. 
and they have um, on that site they can find all of the different seders that we've done in the past. Um, we have focused on um, archaeological uh, the archaeological finds in in Egypt, and we've had uh, seders that talk about the crypto Jews or the conversos, um, many other theme seders that have been lots of fun, and people can uh, can replay them. And in fact, have many people around the world have asked us for the materials that we don't uh, you know supplemental stuff that's not on our website. So. Um, those two websites, I think, will be fun for anybody that's interested in Pesach. Well, thanks again for joining us. It was great speaking with you, Murray. Thank you very much, Lisa, and thank you very much to the, to the Yiddish Book Center as well. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center and Amherst Mass. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit our website, YiddishBookCenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Lisa Newman. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.